You're listening to Soul Roadmap, episode number 15. Welcome to Soul Roadmap Podcast. Each week, you'll hear strategies and inspiration to take action and live life better. Hi, I'm Dina Cataldo, lawyer, coach, and entrepreneur. This podcast is your roadmap to creating more success in your life, business, and relationships. Let's get started. This episode may be a bit controversial, but it's a topic we need to have more conversations about. We're talking about our relationship with alcohol, and you'll want to listen in whether you've struggled with alcohol or not, because this episode is about more than just alcohol. This episode is about creating a better relationship to ourselves. My guest today has been featured in Forbes, The Huffington Post, Elite Daily, and Mind Body Green, and she has a unique view on alcohol consumption that you may not have heard before. Before I introduce you to her, I want to let you know that I want to hear from you. This episode may bring up some topics and emotions, and I want to know what they are. You can reach me at dina.cataldo on Instagram, and you can join Soul Roadmap's Facebook group. I'll link to those in the show notes at dinacataldo.com forward slash episode 15. This topic especially interests me because of my own experiences with alcohol and substance abuse within the legal profession. I found a 2016 New York Times article that states, one in three practicing lawyers are problem drinkers based on the volume and frequency of alcohol consumed, 28% suffer from depression, and 19% show symptoms of anxiety, according to this study, which involved over 12,000 licensed employed lawyers in 19 states around the United States. There seems to be a black and white perspective on alcohol abuse. You're either an addict or you don't have a problem. If you have a problem with alcohol, then you're considered an addict. But life isn't black and white. And why don't we ever hear there's a middle ground between complete sobriety and calling yourself an alcoholic in our culture? My guest today offers a fresh perspective. Caitlin Paget is the Amazon best-selling author of Drink Less, Be More, How to Have a Great Night and Life Without Getting Wasted, and a certified coach for successful women who struggle with alcohol. At the age of 29, Caitlin's work-hard, play-hard lifestyle started taking its toll. She realized she was drinking herself to sleep almost every night and blacking out every weekend. Thirsty for alternatives to mainstream treatment, Caitlin combined her background in psychology, nutrition, fitness, harm reduction, and holistic health to craft an unconventional approach to help women find freedom from alcohol on their own terms. She tells you about her story of overdrinking and recognizing that she wanted to make change, the challenges to making change when alcohol was everywhere, and why she felt it was overkill to totally eliminate alcohol from her life and call herself an alcoholic. Let's go ahead and listen in. Well, hi, Caitlin. How are you doing? Hi, I'm great. Thank you. How are you? (laughs) (laughs) I'm doing great. Thanks. Thank you for joining me this morning. I really appreciate it. I was intrigued with you when I read just a bit about you and a book that you wrote that's Drink Less, Be More. Mm -hmm. And given the fact that I work with a lot of people who are, you know, in these high stress environments, they're professionals, mostly lawyers. 
I know that they reach for alcohol on a regular basis, a lot of them, and it's part of the culture. So I learned a little bit about you and I'm hoping that you can introduce yourself to our audience today. Yeah. So hi, thank you. And hi to everyone who's listening. And it's really great to have the opportunity to have these conversations because I myself was also in a very high stress driven position for a lot of years, which actually led to a burnout. I often refer to it now as crashing and burning. And I know how it can be to be completely kind of just in a certain lifestyle and maybe have an inner voice telling you that it's not working for you anymore. And yet when you look around you, it's kind of what you're surrounded by and it's hard to know what the options are. And that certainly was true for me for for many years. And it was the world that I lived until, as I said, I kind of burnt out from it and then found a new path, studied holistic health and nutrition. And as even as I was studying and gaining this knowledge, the alcohol piece was the hardest one for me to sort out for myself because I had, since the time I was 15, when I started drinking, and it had always been a way to escape, a way to turn off my busy brain, a way to relax, to have fun, to connect. Then over the years with the, the stress of my job, it was sometimes I'd drink every night. Sometimes it was just drinking to excess on the weekends through the hardest periods. It was certainly like I kind of just didn't know how to turn off without it. And I was traveling a lot for work. It would be like on airplanes, in airport lounges, you know, at conferences, at events. And there was always, always alcohol around. And wh- what was really interesting is that when I started trying to make these changes, as I said, you know, I was kind of shifting focus and studying yoga and and nutrition and slowing down and challenging my work identity a little bit of having to work, 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 push, push, push all the time. And, and, and I knew that I wanted to change my relationship to alcohol and I just couldn't seem to get a handle on it. And that even in and of itself was so hard for me because I'm like, I can do so many things. I'm very accomplished. I'm ambitious. You know, I put my mind to something and I do it. Why can't I figure this out? And I realized that for women like us, we don't have a model of how to do this in a way that feels really authentic to many of us. So I knew I wasn't an alcoholic. I had gone to recovery type programs. I'd sort of stepped in the rooms at at meetings and it just didn't feel like for me. And I'd gone to see a therapist and I see the value of therapy, but it wasn't exactly the right fit either. And so I was searching, searching, searching. And I actually had this kind of divine download was I was walking down the beach one day that was like, you need to write a book for women (laughs) about alcohol. And I was sort of like, but I haven't figured it out yet. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I did. And over the years of really kind of digging in deep and realizing that I wanted to find a way that felt authentic to me to redefine my relationship to alcohol and then to support other women to do the same, it evolved into what is now a holistic lifestyle and health coaching practice and the book Drink Less Be More How to Have a Great Night and Life Without Getting Wasted. And you know, we can go into to more details around around that as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I really appreciated a different perspective on alcohol abuse because what you had described when I was learning more about you was not just you drink a lot of alcohol and therefore you are an alcoholic. It was, I drink a lot of alcohol and I enjoy alcohol, but I'm 
using it in a way that it does not serve me. Mm-hmm. And so I would hope, I'm hoping that you'll share with us your thoughts surrounding a spectrum of alcohol abuse. Yeah. And I love that you use that word spectrum because it really is. And I think it's problematic that in our culture, we often see things as very black and white. It's either everything's a-okay, you're drinking normally, there's no problem here, or then you have a problem. And if you have <laughs> a problem, then you're probably an alcoholic and, you know, and we know what happens then, you can never drink alcohol again. And I actually believe that that is very detrimental and, uh, and actually causes harm because a lot of people don't go and seek out help because they're afraid that they're going to be told that they can never drink again. And intuitively, many of us know that we can learn how to moderate or that we can. There's a, there's a small voice inside of us that sometimes we don't even really want to believe because we've tried and failed before or what we've tried in the past hasn't worked. But there's this part of us that knows that, wait a second, if I can have a drink in a certain environment, why shouldn't I be able to have a drink in another environment? Or does that mean that I'm an alcoholic when I guess certainly do drink to excess in certain situations or I'm drinking really habitually, but I actually know that I could stop. I'm just not doing it. And so what we commonly think of as alcoholism, which is now according, you know, in the medical profession and according to the, the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Manual for Mental Health and um, Related Disorders, alcoholism isn't even used in that as a diagnosis anymore. It's severe alcohol use disorder. So it actually is a spectrum of moderate to severe alcohol use disorder. And alcohol use disorder is often what we think of when we think, you know, when we see the celebrities in the news, when we hear about people who just, their lives completely unravel, they go on benders, they, they can't ever stop after one drink, their lives become unmanageable, they lose jobs, they lose families, they, you know, just everything falls apart. That would be at the severe end of the spectrum. And the mild to moderate is where we find ourselves drinking more than we want to. A lot of the time, we find ourselves drinking more than what is the government recommended amount, which is not very much actually. So between one to two drinks for women, no more than like four days a week. And what's considered a binge is more than four drinks in one sitting for a woman. So if you're consistently doing that, you might fall into the mild to moderate alcohol use disorder, but it also is then combined. So there's the sort of physiological effects of alcohol that are pretty much consistent across the board, right? Four drinks of alcohol a day is going to physiologically affect my body in a very similar way to it will affect yours. But the, the kind of the social implications might be very different. I might be functioning and being able to hold down a job and have a relationship and all of these other things. So it, that's where there's a little bit of, of gray area on the spectrum. And often it comes through conversations with a doctor or a specialist to help you identify exactly where on the spectrum you are. But for the most, most part, the majority of us are not physically dependent on alcohol. So there's actually a very small percentage, according to the Center for Disease Control, it's around 10 to 15% of people that have what we consider to be like that addictive gene, that chemical difference, which is that if I have a sip or a drink of alcohol, it's very, very difficult for me to stop there. And that is true for some people. And 
those people who experience that, unfortunately, are always going to struggle with moderation. It doesn't mean that they can't do it, but that like internal struggle that you often hear about of like, I just, I'm going to do it. I'm going to have that one drink, but I'm going to white knuckle it through the rest of the night. Like I'm caught, I'm going to be thinking about it, obsessing about it. It's, mm. you know, that unfortunately is a, is a chemical difference that's in some people's brains. And it's very difficult for like, it doesn't really go away. So you can manage it, but it's, it's tiring and it's consuming and it's exhausting. And so this approach of what I call now redefining sobriety, redefining your relationship to alcohol for that small percentage of the population is going to be a challenge and choosing abstinence or being alcohol free might be the better option for peace of mind, for not having so much energy consumed to be trying to figure out how to moderate and in which, which situations and which are going to be more triggering and all of that. But that aside, that's 85 to 90% of the population who are people who may struggle with alcohol at times, but who don't have that chemical imbalance in their brains and who can learn how to moderate with support. And so some of my clients that's their goal. They want to learn how to moderate. They, in their, their heart of hearts, when they get quiet with themselves and think about it, or when I ask them, it's often one of the first questions I ask people is, if you could wave a magic wand and you could have your ideal relationship to alcohol, what would it look like? And they'll often say, well, I, I would love to be able to have a, share a bottle of wine or a glass of wine with my husband. Or I'd like to know that I can go out with a group of girlfriends and have a cocktail and enjoy it and have that be that. You know, that there's certain circumstances in their life where they really feel like they'd like to be able to have that glass or that drink. And they also know that alcohol is causing them issues in other aspects of their life. And so that's what we end up working on a lot is then, well, okay, so if you're habitually drinking every night and that's your way of turning off your brain and your stress relief and your reward, because many of us use it as a reward at the end of the day, what can we then shift in your life so that you are fulfilling those needs in other ways? So that then ultimately you can have your ideal relationship to alcohol, which is that it's kind of like a silver lining sometimes. It's like it enhances a meal a little bit or a culinary experience or a connection with someone, but that it's not the main event. And that you know that you have all of these other tools and resources that you can use in your daily life. I really like what you're saying because I think in our culture in particular, it is very easy for adults to teach children just don't drink. Mm -hmm. And the solution for not being able to handle yourself in a social situation with alcohol is do not drink. You're actually providing tools to them, which I think would be really beneficial if that were something that were taught us at a younger age, because at least my experience was, is I learned about alcohol in college because of course mm -hmm. I was watched like a hawk by my parents and, you know, I may have experimented a little bit, but college was really where I learned and college is a whole nother level when it comes to drinking alcohol. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is something where it's a party culture. And because one group of people does it, people will feel like they should be doing it too. And then when I went to law school, every single event 
was structured around alcohol. I mean, even school-sponsored events, especially school-sponsored events, they were fundraisers, they were events that had alcohol involved, and there were actually security guards that were posted to make sure that we didn't drink and drive so that we didn't hurt our career moving forward. Mm -hmm. So it was very, very alcohol-based in terms of how they structured our social interactions. Mm -hmm. And none of that included any tools that you could use to change up exactly what you were doing around alcohol. Can you explain some of the things that you tell your clients around some alcohol alternatives? Yeah. And that's such a great point because the majority of us weren't taught how to drink responsibly. So either we have a scenario like what you described, which is that our parents are strict or our parents, they themselves don't have the healthiest relationship to alcohol. So we're not having that modeled or the decision-making around it modeled in our, in our home. Or then we immerse ourselves in a college environment or a professional environment, where, as you said, it's the norm to drink in a certain way and often to excess. And it's usually just like, drink as much as you want, but don't get in trouble kind of thing. Like you said, don't drink and drive. So some of them are super, super basic and they almost seem like, I don't want anybody to listen to this to feel hard on themselves for not having thought about this because they were almost like this revelation to me of, huh, why didn't I think of that? And again, I think when we're really, really intelligent people as we are, then sometimes we can be really hard on ourselves when we've repeated patterns unconsciously and feel stuck in a certain area of, of, of our lives. So I don't want anybody listening to this to feel like, why didn't I think of that myself? Because again, it's not something that we really, we really have modeled to us. And we're so, we really do go on autopilot a lot, or we learn something at a certain age and then don't really question it for, for a lot of years. And so really simple ones that again, seem really simple, but it's funny because the majority of us don't do this is to something that I call arrive and assess. So when you get somewhere, we often are in the habit of, you know, if we're walking into a bar or if let's say in its event and there's champagne being passed around or whatever it is, you just, you reach for the glass, you know, or you beeline for the bar or you sit down at your table and you open up the drinks menu. That's just autopilot. We all do it, right? So it's arrive and assess and allow at least half an hour before you order or consume your first alcoholic drink. So what I do often is I will order, I'll drink a glass of water. And it's the perfect thing too to say when you're arriving somewhere. I do this all the time now. I'll just say, actually, I'm really thirsty. Can I have a glass of water? I can't even think about what I want to drink yet until I, until I have some water. I just need to hydrate. Like Nobody's going to question that. And it buys you time. You then have a chance to settle into how you're feeling and how you feel in the space and whether drinking within the first half an hour is in your best interest, or maybe you want to hold off a little bit. You know, it's really interesting just to start checking in with yourself and allowing yourself to have that, that break or the space between when you arrive somewhere and when you start drinking, it prolongs your first drink. So then you're that much kind of behind where everybody else is without anybody noticing. It's just, it's just a really, really basic, but what I've found to be very helpful way of checking in with yourself, postponing the time of your first drink, hydrating, which is really important. You can also, and this is something I started doing a lot, we're really fortunate 
in this time that we're in, there's so many craft cocktails, infusions, different ingredients, and those make fantastic mocktails. And so a lot of restaurants, and again, we often just don't think to look, they have now a mocktail section. A lot of them will have like a couple of craft mocktails, or you can look at the cocktail list and say, oh, that like lavender infused syrup sounds really good. And just say, you know, can you, I'm still really thirsty. Can you make me something like this, but without the alcohol, you know, or can you use a couple of these ingredients? And most bartenders now love to do that. They love to be creative. They like doing something different. And I've never, ever had anybody complain or act annoyed that I've asked them to make me something different based on some of the ingredients on the, on the menu. It's like they're usually want to show off their skills. So, and, you can, and then you can say, you know, I, I love the way this looks, but not too sweet, please, or whatever, you know. So that's a really great way. The other thing is that, and this is neurologically true, is that if we leave our decision-making to the moment, we will often slide back into what we're most familiar with. Yes. So I always recommend making a plan before you go out. So not leaving it like, oh, I just don't want to drink as much tonight. We often focus on what we don't want. Okay. I don't want to get drunk. I don't want to, I don't want to make an ass out of myself. I don't want to wake up the next morning and not remember what's going on. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't. And we don't really create this vision of what we do want. So I'll recommend often taking some time, you know, you're getting ready, you're doing your makeup, take those moments to yourself to focus on what you do want out of the evening, what kind of connections you want to make, how you want to feel, like how does it feel to move through the room with confidence? How do you want to feel at the end of the night when you get home and you realize, wow, I just had an amazing time and I only had two drinks. You know, how are you going to feel the next morning when you wake up full of energy, having had a great night of sleep, remembering everything that happened the night before? Really focus on what you do want and what the positive outcomes of drinking less would be. And then know that also check in with yourself. So I know that if I drink more than two drinks, it's going to be harder for me to say no to the third. Then you know in your plan for the evening that you're going to drink two or, or less. And so then you kind of plan out, okay, so I get there, I'm going to have a drink of water, then I'm going to order a mocktail, then I'll have a drink, then I'll have another water, then I'll have another drink, and that's that. Or I had another client, for example, she just knew that any drinks after, I think it, I think it was even quite early, which always surprised me, but she was in New York and worked in finance and they would do a lot of happy hour kind of things. And she sort of knew that any drink for her past 9 or 10 p.m. was just kind of like, she realized she just didn't want to be with alcohol in her system. It would affect her sleep. It would be hard for her to get up early and, and work out in the morning. Yeah. And so for her, it was just, she'd put a cap on. So maybe it would be one drink, maybe it would be two, but not past a certain time in the evening. So you know, it will vary from person to person, but really thinking it through in advance and deciding with, a, with clarity what you're going to do will really, really help in the moment because we're creatures of habit and we slide back onto autopilot and make our decisions unconsciously. So it's happened so fast and so easily. And then especially if we're in a, in a situation where we feel triggered, which again is not usually a conscious thing, but if we're, if we're feeling under stress or we're nervous or we're tired or we're cranky or whatever it is, it's that much easier for us just to go back into what we know and what we know has worked in the past. So 
it does require a bit of planning in the beginning, but it's really worth it if you are wanting to change your relationship to alcohol. And focusing on what the positive outcome is going to be will also really help with any sort of feeling of deprivation or lack, or I'm going to miss out. It's like, no, actually I'm gaining, I'm gaining energy and clarity and feeling proud about myself and my decisions and better quality sleep. And you know, all the things that I'm gaining from making these choices, as opposed to what I might be lacking, if that makes sense. That makes sense to me. That makes a lot of sense to me. I was thinking about how a lot of people that I have seen who seem to drink a lot, they usually are doing it to numb something. And I'm not saying, you know, the times when you're going out with your girlfriends and you're having a couple drinks. I mean, when it is one drink after another, after another, after another. Yeah. And I have noticed that that most often happens in situations where they have just come back from work, they're whatever they're doing. And it's almost like what you were saying, they can't help themselves because it's so ingrained, they just keep drinking. And I haven't noticed it as much with women as I have with men, but I have noticed that. Mm -hmm. Is there like a fundamental difference between how women use alcohol and men use alcohol? Do you have any experience with that? Well, I think that certainly up until very recently, it has been much more socially acceptable for men to drink and to drink a lot. So women still tend to be more secretive about the amount that they're drinking. It's not kind of as much, although this has changed a bit. It's not so much the badge of honor, you know, of how much you can drink. And also there's more permission for women to share their feelings and their emotions and to have that kind of emotional support. And so I really see men struggling often where if I have a really stressful day, I'm more likely to be able to reach out to a friend or a family member or partner, whoever, and be honest about the actual, the heart of the feeling. Whereas men will keep that pent up and don't really express themselves. And some of my male clients have often said, and what's been very challenging for them around starting to cut back or, or stop drinking is that that's the only time sometimes when they're drunk with their colleagues or with their guy friends on a guy's weekend where they can have a heart to heart. You know, Sometimes for men, the only time they really give themselves that permission to express their feelings whether they be negative feelings or positive feelings, like the, I love you, bro. Like, I love you, man. Like, I'm not trying to minimize that at all. Like that's real for some men. That's the only time when they say those words is when they're drinking with their friends. So those are what were the first that came to mind. So the cultural conditioning we have around alcohol. And then the fact that just men have a harder time reaching out for emotional support and expressing their feelings, which really ties into the amount that they keep drinking. And I think you bring up also a really good point as it, you know, the majority of my clients are, are women, although I do work with men sometimes, but there's sort of concurrent work that needs to happen, which is one on one side. And you know, my book helps with this. And certainly this is part of what we talk about, but it's the strategy. So it's the, what do I do in the X situation? How do I set my intentions? How do I then follow through on my intentions? You know, what, what is my, my strategy going to be tonight? What are my drink alternatives? And having that, that toolkit, so to speak. Concurrent to that, 
is it's like, if you look at it like an iceberg, what I just described is sort of the above water part of the iceberg. And that's often why people come to me or they buy my book is that I want to know how, show me how to. And then that below water part of the iceberg is really, whew, you know, mm-hmm. where, where are my emotions at? How am I letting my head run the show or my heart? Do I have emotional support? How, what is my relationship to stress in my life? How do I manage stress in my life? Do I give myself permission to take a break? Why or why not? What is my work ethic? Why is it like that? Where did that come from? What does it say about me if I, if I take a break? It's really the identity piece of how we come to be the people that we are and why alcohol continues to show up in our lives in the way that it does. And then it's, it's, it's actually, so, you know, I talk about changing our relationship to alcohol, but really it's about changing our relationship to ourselves. And when we talk about redefining sobriety and, and redefining, you know, what sobriety means for each of us, it's also redefining our relationship to ourselves, to our work, our work ethic, learning for me, I never, I didn't know how to take a break. I would push myself so hard that the only days that I really gave myself permission to kind of do nothing were the days that I was too hungover to do anything other than eat crap food and like watch Netflix. This is probably pre Netflix. We know what you're like, We're so used to saying that now, but watch some. We were watching DVDs or right? something. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, I didn't know how to take a break. You know, I didn't know how to ease up on myself. And so alcohol was my way to do that. It was my way, it was my permission to turn my brain off at night. It was my permission to, to do things that I didn't know how to give myself permission to otherwise in the nightlife space. But also it was my permission to have a do nothing day, which I didn't know how to do without being too hungover to do anything like to not, you know, so I'd be like, oh yeah, you know, today's a write off, but then I'd beat myself up about it too. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't feel proud of that. I would act like it in the moment or we'd go out for a boozy brunch and be like, well, I guess, you know we know how this day is going to end kind of thing. And then that was the only way that myself and not just myself, because it was the other, you know, my colleagues or my friends, that was our downtime. Right. And then we go hard again on Monday and it was like, well, we've got to like basically pay penance for what we just did on Saturday and Sunday. So now it's like up extra early training for that half marathon, go, 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 you know, still having the drinks to unwind at the end of the night, like push, 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 you know, until the next two or three weeks later, the next do nothing day happened. But it was never, I didn't know how to like self care for me was a very, I didn't even know those words for a long time. It's so interesting that you say that because, you know, I've had that same experience too. You go out for brunch and you have to call the day right off. And yeah, you're really proud of it at the time. You're like, Hey, you know, this is great. Isn't day drinking the best. And then you don't get anything done that you knew that you wanted to get done to reach your bigger goals. Mm -hmm. And you beat yourself up about it. There's all that shame surrounding it because you did not, exercise the self-control or the discipline to do what you really wanted to create that thing you really wanted to create. And another thing that was coming to mind as you were speaking is I was really curious about what some of your clients' tipping points were, like that Mm -hmm. point when they recognized, okay, look, there's something here. I'm not sure what it is, but I do feel that 
Maybe I'm drinking a little too much. And maybe that will key in anyone who might be listening to maybe recognize some signs that they might want to take a look at this in their life. That's such a good question. And, and I also want to talk about the brunch thing. And I think it will tie into that question as well. So I also want to say there's nothing wrong with having a boozy brunch. Right. It's about how you feel about it. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you have, if you like, actually, as we were talking about, I'm like, I have not had one of those in a really long time. And there's actually a certain appeal to it right now. But this <laughs> is the, difference. the difference for me would be that it would be a very intentional choice at this point. You know, it'd be something I'd be like, you know what, I haven't done this in a really long time. And it's summer and it's beautiful. It's patio season. I just kind of want to do that. You know, mm-hmm. like I want to have a Sunday where I go and I have some drinks in the daytime and I go to the park after and I enjoy it, but it's a conscious choice and I feel good about it. And this is the beauty of redefining sobriety and redefining your relationship to alcohol is that that might be a goal of yours. And that's a beautiful part of your vision to work towards. You know, if you want to get to a place where you can have that bougie brunch, like once in however, whatever feels good for you, and that's part of your self-care plan and it's <laughs> intentional, then great. You know, like that's, that's beautiful if that's part of what you want for yourself. And I think how that leads into your, into the second part in your question is that shame piece and that are you showing up for yourself in your best possible way? And is this your best? Yes. I talk about that a lot. So we form so many habits that are so unconscious and we also hold ourselves to a certain standard that often it's like, wait a second, where is this even coming from? You know, is this really for me or is it because of how I think I should be? Or is it because somebody told me that it means a certain thing if I take a day off or I take it? Like, I remember a client for her, the biggest, biggest, biggest deal was to, she was a high achiever, high earner, her salary basically supported her household and her, their three kids, her husband didn't make as much money as her. She felt this enormous amount of pressure. And for her, part of her self-care plan that we came up with was taking, I think it was a Wednesday morning off and going to the beach for two hours. Like for her, when we started working together, that was the, almost such an out there suggestion that in the middle of the week, she would stop everything, block out that time in her work schedule so nobody could schedule meetings for her. The kids were at school. Her husband was, I don't know, you know, and she would go and just go to the beach and read a book Mm. that was not a self-development book. (laughs) (laughs) That was such a symbol of taking care of herself and prioritizing herself and saying, you deserve a break just because, because you work hard, because you do all these things, not because she was often, that was her thing too. It's like, well, the break would come after they'd had a barbecue and this and that and the other thing. And then Sunday rolls around. It's like, ugh. but meanwhile, there's like all this stuff piling up and the laundry and, you know, it doesn't really end. And so she would use alcohol as an escape from the amount of pressure that she had on her, but then it would add to the pressure. Right. And so for her taking these mornings off, or then she started booking spa appointments and she started incorporating self-care into her week in a significant way. So she didn't need to escape from her life the same way on the weekends because she had been honoring herself and taking care of herself during the week, which was unfathomable, like just couldn't even conceive of it when we first started working together. So if you're listening to this, 
I would ask yourself if you do you feel great every day when you wake up in the morning about what happened the day before and the night before? And if you're feeling super awesome about your choices all the time as they relate to alcohol, then you probably don't need to make any changes. Or maybe you are drinking a certain amount consistently, but unless you're really feeling like it's a problem in your life, then you're probably not going to want to change anyway. So it doesn't really (laughs) matter what I say, you know? Um, So I could say, are you drinking more than, than two drinks a day? five days a week, or do you consistently drink more than four drinks a night, you know, which is, which is considered a binge, which I, I used to think that was crazy. I'm like, what are they talking about? I got five in me at least. Like, right? That's like, <laughs> so, you know, if you're listening to this and that seems crazy to you as well, like I get it. I was there too. It might feel like a really big shift from where you're at right now to what I'm talking about. And if that's the case for you, then maybe just seeing how you what one less drink a night feels like for you, or even half a glass less a night feels like to start with. You know, if you know that you're pushing the upper limits of what's recommended for low risk drinking, you know, and this is where we're talking about low risk so that you're reducing your risk of cancer, of heart disease, of dementia, Alzheimer's, like all of these fairly serious health concerns that come along with drinking an elevated amount consistently or regularly binging, which is drinking more than four drinks in a sitting. So you might want to, if it seems really far off to think about cutting back as much as I'm talking about, just do a small tapered approach. Maybe try one day a week that you're not drinking, you know, and start there and see what that feels like. Or start with one less drink a night when you're going out with your colleagues or your friends or whomever. And, you know, you usually drink four or five, try three and see what that feels like. And if that is consistently challenging for you, then I would definitely recommend considering, if you're ready to consider, reaching out for some more professional support around that. Some of you might be drinking way less than that, and yet you're waking up feeling ugh in the morning. Like, I did it again. I only want, I didn't even want to drink last night, and how did I end up drinking three? Or I was only going to drink one or two, and I, you know, or I blacked out again, or whatever it is, this is the thing is that, you know, and I have a lot of women who come to me saying like other people in my life don't think this is a problem, Hmm. but I'm not feeling great about it. I know that I'm not living my best. Yes. You know, I know in my heart of hearts, my intuition is telling me that there's another way for me to be like that this like feeling or bloated or just tired or lethargic, like feeling like you're crawling through the fog in the morning. Do I want to continue with this? So it can be a very individual decision because some people, somebody just reached out to me the other day. If you saw her on paper with the amount that she's drinking, you would not, and a doctor would not say that she has a problem with alcohol. And yet she knows that she's not showing up at Mm. her best for herself. And what you know, you mentioned what we want to achieve in our life and our, for her, she feels out of alignment. And it, it was hard because her husband's saying, what are you talking about? Like you barely drink. And her friends and the people that she, they go to breweries and things like that, you know, they're like, you know, we never see you drunk anymore. So what's the big deal? But for her, she didn't feel great about the choices she was making and why she was choosing to drink more and when it would happen and it would sneak up on her often. So she just didn't, she felt out of alignment that her, her, the amount that she was drinking and when and how it would have impact her didn't feel in alignment 
with how she wants, like the complete way that she wanted to show up in the world. If that right. makes sense. It totally makes sense. Yeah. That totally makes sense. And I've had those experiences where I had red wine instead of white wine and the red wine does something with my sleep now if I drink it too late. Mm-hmm. So I can't drink red wine late at night. Mm-hmm. So it's just recognizing those little things that don't make you feel good. And when you don't feel good and you're not feeling right, it's important to take note and then address it. Because if you don't, then it, it's just going to repeat itself. Yeah. And I, I'm glad you mentioned that too, because again, that's what's the, the beauty about this approach of redefining sobriety being so individual is that really a lot of it is about asking, just asking yourself questions and learning strategies that can then, so I want to get better night's sleep. Well, it's, it's actually scientifically proven that, and you might've noticed it more with red wine, but any alcohol within an hour before going to sleep is going to interrupt your REM sleep. Hmm. So you are not going to go into that deep restorative sleep and you're going to wake up feeling less rested. So even just making shifts like that, like, okay, so I'm going to go out and I'm going to share a bottle of wine with my partner or whatever it is. But I know that after, you know, if I want to be asleep by 11, that I'm not going to have another drink. I'm going to make sure that I'm drinking, finish drinking 9.30 10 kind of thing. I'm going to hydrate a lot before going to bed and I'm going to increase my quality of sleep. And these all sort of have these, these positive, it's like a positive upward spiral when we start to feel more in control and empowered around the choices that we're making. So again, it's not about restriction or self-punishment or taking away these things that, that actually for many of us bring us pleasure, but it's about learning how to be in relationship to that thing in a way that is healthier and more aligned with our health goals, with our, with our mental, emotional, physical, spiritual goals, you know, and sleep, for example, is so important. And yet we often, myself, I mean, I mentioned this earlier, I drank to sleep. So, mm. which was just this self-defeating right. habit that I thought that I needed alcohol to unwind and to put me in that kind of numbed out sleepy state. Yeah. But I was then having a really, really horrible sleep as a result. Well, you mentioned that, but also people who are depressed, they feel that they should drink more and then they'll feel better and they'll be happier. But that's alcohol is a depressant. And so it's just going to encourage those same feelings of feeling low. Yeah. And also I work with, and I myself have struggled with anxiety and I work with a lot of women who, who struggle with anxiety. And it's also very true for anxiety that we, we drink to help. We think we're helping our anxiety. And in the moment at the very initial stage of intoxication, it does feel like things are momentarily easier, but neurologically and biochemically, we're actually exacerbating the problem in terms of the chemical imbalances that we're experiencing in our in our brains. And so that's where also learning how to take care of ourselves differently, learning how to relate to other people even, you know, being able to say no, being able to be like, actually, is this social event really what I need to go do right now? If I'm feeling this much stress and anxiety about getting out of my house again, getting dressed up or going out or doing this thing, is it really what I need to be doing right now? Sometimes it's just about making different choices too about how we're spending our time 
And if we're feeling maxed out and exhausted and depleted and the idea of being in a social situation and making small talk and then making small talk without as much alcohol is just like completely stressing you out, then maybe just don't go. And it's not about becoming a hermit or cutting yourself off, but it's also really about honoring yourself and understanding or like, okay, I'm going to go for a little bit, but I'm going to set the timer, <laughs> you know? And right. I know that by like, I'm going to go show up and say hi to everybody. And then I'm going to conveniently have to go do something else that, you know, whatever that is. And even if that's like, go home and get in the bath, but really learning how to honor ourselves and take care of ourselves is really, I think, what's at the, the core of this. And then when we can consistently start to do that, then what we thought we needed alcohol for often shifts significantly. You know, all of this discussion that we've had makes me feel that there needs to be an educational component about self-care growing up, Mm -hmm. especially for people who are high achievers, people who are taught to work really hard I was never taught self-care as a child. I don't know about you, but I never had any component like that. And that ability to have that quiet time to ourselves, to actually care about ourselves, can get us more in touch with our feelings, our intuition about whether or not something like alcohol or a social event is really serving us and could help us say no when we need to say no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so true. I mean, I didn't slow down enough for years to really even know how to, you know, I couldn't. And that might be true for, for somebody who's listening to this. Like, I don't even know where to start. Like, how do I listen to my intuition? I don't know what my intuition is telling me. And if you'd asked me that seven or eight years ago, my answer probably would have been very similar. I don't know. Like, I might have been looked like you're an alien. You know, I don't know what you're talking about. And I was actually journaling about this yesterday. Like, I just was so, I pushed myself so hard. And I was so busy all of the time that I really did not know how to slow down and ask myself or just get quiet with myself or be like, is this really the best thing for me in the moment? And so, that's actually a really, really great place to start. And even incorporating some sort of daily practice that's even just five or 10 minutes to start. And even if that's just sitting there and instead of drinking your coffee in the morning while scrolling on your phone, keep your phone. I always recommend this too, is put your phone on airplane mode before you go to bed, at least half an hour before you go to bed. And then don't turn it back on in the morning or whatever your version of that is, but don't connect online again until you've had a chance to center yourself, to be with yourself, to check in with yourself. How am I doing today? What do I want out of today? How do I want to feel at the end of the day? What are my gratitudes? You know, doing some sort of little practice and it doesn't have to be very long, but something that allows you to connect inward with yourself because we are so quick to be in reactivity mode. And so it's no wonder that by the end of the day, we're so overwhelmed and depleted. 
that we just want to numb out. We just want to shut off because if from the moment our alarm goes off in the morning, well, that one in and of itself is like pulling me outside of myself, yeah. you know, and then it's like, okay. And then I pick up my phone and then I see all my notifications and I'm scrolling my phone and then my kid is over here and I'm getting breakfast and I'm doing this and I'm blah, 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 and sending that email and then I'm commuting and then I'm listening to something while I commute because I need to multitask, you know, and it's like, and then, you know, come seven o'clock, eight o'clock at night. It's like, give me that glass of wine because I just, you know, I'm maxed. And so I have another client, for example, again, you know, she was responsible for a lot of the earning in her family. She had two small daughters who both had autoimmune health challenges. Her husband then had this crazy car accident and like brain injury. Like her life was so challenging and she was still trying to work and take care of everybody. So for her, 10 minutes was like, the can't, you know, she was just like, not possible. So we started with one minute meditations. Huh? Yeah. And like for her, it would be like driving to an appointment or whatever she had to do and sitting in her car, getting there a minute early or sitting in her car after a meeting or something and waiting for a minute and just putting the timer and just sitting. And sometimes she would cry, you know, or sometimes she would breathe a sigh of relief, or sometimes she would put on some music, you know, she had little meditations and things that she would do, but she called them minute meditations. And that's all that she could handle. Like anything more than that felt like extra pressure, which is the last thing in the world that she needed. Right. But it helped her feel more in control. So all these other extreme and intense things that happened in her life and all of these things that took her, her care was almost 100% for other people. Like that's all she had available was for her young children and her husband and her work and everything. But for her to take back like those minutes at certain times during the day was like, I do matter. This is all I can manage right now, but I'm going to do it. And I'm going to intentionally take this minute just to be with myself right now. And that was huge. And it started amongst some other things, but to create a big shift for her of sort of taking back control and taking some moments to say, I do matter. I can make this minute about me and only me. And to, to not have every minute of every day be in reactivity mode, you know? So start where you can. That's what I would suggest too, is that really start where you can and you know, I feel like we could talk for days about this and our relationship to caring for ourselves because I agree it's not something that we're taught. And sometimes, you know, it really is like you just carve out the teeniest little moment that you can in your life, but do it. The thing is, is that start somewhere. And if you take, maybe you're listening and that's what you take from this call, (laughs) you know, is to like put your timer on for a minute or five minutes. And this is the thing too that I say, and this is why so much of this conversation could be for anybody, you know, whether or not you're somebody that has struggled or is struggling with alcohol, because really that's, like I said, that's so much of what it's about. It's about our relationship to ourselves. But what I also say to my clients often is that we think about alcohol as a thing that affects us in the evenings, right? And so it's like, oh, do I take the drink or not in the moment? kind of thing. But I always talk about changing our relationship to alcohol or redefining sobriety as a tw- it's a 24-hour day affair. And really how you treat yourself and how you take care of yourself in the mornings often has more impact on whether or not you want the drink in the night 
than whatever strategy you're going to employ in that moment. You know, that it really is around the clock affair. And that doesn't mean you're thinking about it or thinking about alcohol when you wake up. Most of us are not thinking about a drink first thing in the morning. However, what you are thinking about or not thinking about and what you're doing or not doing to take care of yourself has everything to do with how much you might really feel like you need that glass of wine at the end of the day. Oh my God, yes. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, yes. Well, I want to respect your time. This has been fabulous. And I would love if you would share with our listeners a little bit more about where they can get to know you better. Yeah, so you can go to redefiningsobriety.com and you'll find more about my story, how I got to be where I am today, and also some of the content that I've referenced, uh, both the sort of medical perspectives and just this whole concept of how we are in relationship to ourselves. I had a, a summit that I hosted early on in 2018, and I interviewed a lot of different experts on this topic of redefining sobriety. And so some are medical doctors who talk about the spectrum of alcohol use disorder. And, it, and so they're really interesting interviews around that side of things. Some are talking about self-care. Some are talking about anxiety and stress and trauma and sexuality. There's, there's a whole range of topics. So when you go on the, you know, if you go to my website and you go to the redefining sobriety tab, you'll see a variety of different options. And one of them is the expert interview series. So it is available for purchase. And I'd say if this topic is interesting for you, there's 25 interviews plus bonus materials. Like every, every speaker gave a gift as well. So there's like a ton of resources on this topic. And I'd say if, if, if you're curious, go there and check it out and just kind of it's like conversations like this but each one is focused on around a certain a certain element of our relationship to alcohol and the idea of redefining it for ourselves and so i would invite you to to check that out if you're interested you can also read more about my book i also have a self study program which is an 8 week program that walks you through with weekly videos and content around uh, a lot of the, the, the information that I share with my private clients, but you can try it out for yourself at home as well. And, and then I always just love connection. And so really my connection calls are one of my favorite things that I do. And so feel free. There's, you'll also on my website, see how you can set up a session with me and honestly do it. I love to connect whether or not you think you want to work privately or if you just have questions around some of my offerings or anything that we've talked about today, please do feel free to reach out because I just love to have these conversations. As you can see, I, can I love that you call them connection calls. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I'll be sure to link to everything that you just mentioned in Perfect. the show notes. So everyone will have access to them. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me this morning. This has been really great. Thank you. It was really an honor. And I'm so grateful that you're taking this conversation to your audience because I don't think that it happens often enough. And so when you reached out to me around doing this interview, I was just so grateful and appreciative. And yeah, I just think it's really important for us to have a safe space where we feel like we can we can share. I know for a long time, I didn't have that. And so if anything, I hope that our conversation today has you know, maybe provided some new insights, but also just made it more comfortable to have this conversation. Yeah, this is not a conversation that I have really heard before. And mm-hmm. so I imagine that a lot of people have not heard this perspective. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really glad you're doing the work that you're doing. It's fantastic. Thank you so much.
All right. Well, you have a wonderful day. Thanks. You too. I want to review how we can handle a situation and bring more intention to our drinking habits. And this is all based on what Caitlin told us. So first, arrive and assess. Allow at least 30 minutes before you order or consume your first alcoholic drink. Order a glass of water. Say, I can't even think about what I want until I have a glass of water. I'm really thirsty. Then you can assess whether you even want a drink. Second, Recognize that if we leave our decision-making to the moment, we'll slide back to our habits. Make a specific intention on what you want, not what you don't want. So for example, she said, I want to have a glass of water, a mocktail, and I want to feel good walking through the room and feel confident. How will you feel the next morning when you have a full night's sleep? Instead of saying something like, I don't want to get drunk. Think about what you're gaining from these choices instead of what you're lacking. Third, know yourself. If you know it's hard for you to say no to a third drink if you have a second drink, then know that you're sticking to one. Fourth, if you want to have a boozy brunch, just be intentional about it. Know that that's what you want and it's okay. Fifth, consider ordering a mocktail. Bartenders love to get creative and it's something that will help you have a drink in your hand without feeling like you're being left out. Having this conversation made me see that we need a cultural shift when it comes to alcohol and substance abuse generally. We're not educated at a young age around substance abuse, nor are we given the tools to handle it in our young adulthood. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this topic and your personal experiences if you'd like to share them by DMing me on Instagram at dina.cataldo or telling me what you think in the Soul Roadmap podcast Facebook group. I recommend her book to start learning more about how to become more intentional about your drinking. I've linked to that book as well as everything I've talked about in this program at dinacataldo.com forward slash episode 15. That's dinacataldo.com forward slash episode 15. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Soul Roadmap. If you have a moment, I'd appreciate it if you'd subscribe, rate, and left an honest review on iTunes. I read every single review, so let me know what you want to hear more or less of, and I'll talk to you next week.